Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 12, Tesla in Steel City, 1889. Hi everyone, welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. Before we begin this week, I just want to take a minute to talk about a glitch with the mailing list for the show's newsletter. I use a service called MailChimp, to manage the mailing list and send out the updates whenever a new episode comes out. While we've had dozens of people sign up, and I just want to say thank you to all of them before I continue, there have also been, surprise surprise, what looked like a number of spam signups. These would show up in the list as legitimate looking email addresses, but with a string of gobbledygook characters where the name should be. So I had just been deleting those. Until I recently discovered that the sign-up form on the website, the one from MailChimp that links to the mailing list, didn't actually require you to include your first name to sign up, just an email address. In fact, if you don't include your name, it looks like the default might be, you guessed it, for MailChimp to insert a bunch of gobbledygook characters. Which, of course, means that I might have accidentally been deleting legitimate sign-up requests from some of you out there. Oops. This is my fault, of course, as I thought I'd made both fields required when I set it up. This is a good lesson why you shouldn't set these sorts of things up at one in the morning, and then not check it for six months and just assume everything went to plan. So, I have now officially set the form to require both an email and your first name, which lets me insert your name in the email rather than the aforementioned gobbledygook, and I've also added one of those little I am not a robot challenge boxes so that we do keep out any actual spam. So, if you're listening to this and you signed up for the email reminder but haven't actually been getting the emails, well, you might have been flagged as spam when you signed up. So, if you could please go to the show's website, teslapodcast.com, and sign up again, then I promise that this time, I won't delete you. Thanks for your understanding. Putting together this podcast has been a lot of fun so far, but not without its own learning curve. Now then, where were we? Oh yes, 1889. On January the 1st, a total eclipse of the sun is seen over parts of California and Nevada. On the same day, the Paiute spiritual leader Wovoka experiences a vision leading to the start of the ghost dance movement in the Dakotas. 1889 would also be the year that the Indian Religious Code is created, which forbid Native Americans to practice their religions. On January the 8th, Herman Hollerith receives a patent for his electric tabulating machine in the United States. The tabulating machine was an electromechanical machine designed to assist in summarizing information stored on punched cards, It was developed to help process data for the 1890 U.S. Census. Later models were widely used for business applications such as accounting and inventory control. It spawned a class of machines known as unit record equipment and the data processing industry. Also in January, Columbia Phonograph, the forerunner of Columbia Records, is formed in Washington, D.C. Columbia would become one of the most important record companies in the world, and over the next 130 years or so, Columbia would release albums from luminaries like ACDC, Adele, Louis Armstrong, Tony Bennett, Dave Brubeck, David Bowie, Mariah Carey, Johnny Cash, 
Miles Davis, Neil Diamond, Celine Dion, Bob Dylan, Earth, Wind & Fire, Duke Ellington, Pink Floyd, Billy Joel, Beyonce, John Mayer, George Michael, Shakira, Frank Sinatra, Bruce Springsteen, The Clash, Barbara Streisand, Paul Whiteman, 50 Cent, and Pharrell Williams, amongst others. In February, Japan enacts the Meiji Constitution, which lays out a form of mixed constitutional and absolute monarchy based jointly on Prussian and British models. Also in February, U.S. President Grover Cleveland signs a bill admitting North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and Washington as U.S. states. On March 9th, at the Battle of Medema, Johannes IV, Emperor of Ethiopia, is killed by Sudanese forces, who then go on to destroy the Ethiopian army. This is notable as Johannes is widely believed to be the last world leader to die in battle. And that's your fun fact for today. In March, German and American warships keep each other at bay in a standoff in Apia Harbor, as they sought to intervene for control of the Samoan Islands during the Samoan Civil War. The standoff ended when, on March 15th and 16th, a cyclone blew through Samoa and sank all the warships. Also in March, the Eiffel Tower is inaugurated, though it wouldn't actually open to the public until May the 6th. At 300 meters, its height exceeded by 150 meters, the previous tallest structure in the world, which, for those of you keeping score at home, was the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., which had held the record for a mere five years. Contemporary Parisian critics regarded the Eiffel Tower as ugly. At high noon on April 22nd in the Oklahoma Territory, more than 50,000 people rushed to claim their piece of the available 2 million acres, or 8,000 square kilometers, in the territory. Known as the Land Rush of 1889, within hours the cities of Oklahoma City and Guthrie are formed, with populations of at least 10,000. If you want to see a good depiction of how bonkers this whole thing is as a system of land distribution, watch the last little bit of the 1992 movie Far and Away, directed by Ron Howard, and starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. It's, yeah, it was nuts. On June 3rd, the first long-distance electric DC power transmission line in the United States is completed. It runs 14 miles, or 23 kilometers, between Willamette Falls Electric Station A in Oregon City, one of the nation's first hydroelectric power plants, to downtown Portland, Oregon. A year later, the Willamette Falls Electric Company repeated a similar feat by transmitting AC power between the same two locations using Westinghouse dynamos. Also in June, Vincent van Gogh paints his famous Starry Night at Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. And a Neapolitan baker named Raphael Esposito invents the Pizza Margarita, named after the Queen Consort of Italy, Margarita of Savoy. This is the forerunner of the modern pizza, and there's no word yet on when exactly this man is to be made a saint. In September, the Nintendo Kopai, later Nintendo Company Limited, is founded by Fusajiro Yamauchi to produce and market Hanafuda playing cards. 
trying a number of other ventures over the decades to come. Nintendo eventually abandoned its other businesses in favor of toys in the 1960s, and then in the 1970s developed into a video game company, ultimately becoming one of the most influential consumer electronics and video game companies in the world, and swallowing a great deal of my childhood whole. God bless you, Fusajiro Yamauchi. In October, in Paris, the famed Moulin Rouge Cabaret opens. On November the 14th, inspired by Jules Verne, pioneering female journalist Nellie Bly sets out from Hoboken, New Jersey, in an attempt to travel around the world in less than 80 days. She finishes in 72 days, 6 hours, and 11 minutes, with more than a week to spare. November was also a big month in music. On the 20th, Gustav Mahler premieres his Symphony No. 1 in Budapest, and on November 23rd, the first jukebox goes into operation at the Palais Royal Saloon in San Francisco. In February, Sir Ernest Marsden was born. He was an English-New Zealand physicist, recognized internationally for his contributions to the understanding of the atom. He's best known for the Geiger-Marsden experiments, run between 1908 and 1913, in which the atomic nucleus and its positive charge was discovered. Also in February, Lady Olav Baden-Powell, English founder of the Girl Guides, was born. In April, Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler were born. The two share almost nothing in common except for a love of silly mustaches. On May 25th, Igor Sigorsky, Russian developer of the helicopter, was born. In August, Zerna Sharp, an American writer and educator, was born. She's best remembered as the creator of the Dick and Jane Beginning Reader series that helped teach generations of children, this one included, how to read. Martin Heidegger, German philosopher, was born in September 1889. Widely acknowledged to be one of the most original and important philosophers of the 20th century, Heidegger is best known for his contributions to phenomenology and existentialism, with his book, Being and Time, considered one of the central philosophical works of the 20th century. However, Heidegger's reputation is complicated and overshadowed by his unrepentant involvement in the Nazi movement. Joining the Nazi party in 1933, Heidegger remained a member until the end of the war. Officially labeled a Nazi follower by the post-war government, Heidegger was stripped of his teaching post and never allowed to resume his chairmanship of his philosophy department. Though he lived until 1976, Heidegger never admitted any wrongdoing or regret for his Nazi past, nor for his racist and anti-Semitic comments and writing. As a result, his legacy is hotly debated amongst philosophers to this very day. In November, Claude Rains, an English stage and film actor, is born. He's best remembered for his role as the cynical police chief Captain Renault in Casablanca, but he also had roles in classic films like The Adventures of Robin Hood, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Wolfman, Notorious, The Pied Piper of Hamelin, and Lawrence of Arabia. Also born in November, Jawaharlal Nehru, first Prime Minister of India. Edwin Hubble, the American astronomer. He played a crucial role in establishing the field of extragalactic astronomy and observational cosmology, and is regarded as one of the most important astronomers of all time. His name is most widely known for the Hubble Space Telescope, which was named in his honor. Notable deaths in 1889 include, on January 30th, the bodies of Rudolf, Crown Prince of Austria, and his 17-year-old lover, Baroness Mary Vetsera, are discovered in a hunting lodge in the Vienna Wood, 
They died in an apparent murder-suicide pact. While a scandal at the time, the suicide of the crown prince has an eerie line of causality through history. Rudolf had no son, which left his father, the Emperor Franz Joseph, without a direct male heir. The succession passed to Franz Joseph's brother, Rudolf's uncle, the Archduke Karl Ludwig. However, Karl Ludwig died of typhus in 1896, making his son, Rudolf's cousin, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. And, of course, it was the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in 1914 that precipitated World War I. As a student of history, and as a science fiction writer, I can't help but wonder about the counterfactual to all this. How the alternate history of the 20th century might have unfolded differently, but for the suicides of one man and one woman in a hunting lodge in early 1889. In February, notorious American outlaw Bell Starr is shot and killed. A member of the Jesse James gang and a convicted horse thief, Starr was a crack shot and a real Old West character. She used to ride side saddle while dressed in a black velvet riding habit and a plumed hat, carrying two pistols with cartridge belts across her hips. In December, Jefferson Davies, President of the Confederate States of America, dies. He was a member of the Democratic Party who represented Mississippi in the United States Senate and the House of Representatives prior to becoming President of the Confederacy. Also in December, Robert Browning, the English poet and playwright, died. One of the foremost Victorian poets, an incomplete dinner party recital of How They Brought the Good News was recorded on an Edison wax cylinder and is believed to be the oldest surviving recording made in the United Kingdom of a notable person. When we left Tesla last time, he had packed his bags and was headed for Pittsburgh. he just sold his patents to the Westinghouse Company and had agreed to come work as a consultant try and get his AC motors up and running with the existing Westinghouse system. Little did he know, however, as he boarded his train for Pittsburgh, that he was walking into a hornet's nest of resentment, ego, and competing agendas amongst the Westinghouse engineers. As I mentioned last time, it wasn't until Tesla actually moved to Pittsburgh that he and Westinghouse finally met despite the massive patent sale that they had just been party to. Tesla liked Westinghouse right away. Even to a superficial observer, Tesla wrote, Westinghouse's latent force was manifest. A powerful frame, well-proportioned, with every joint in working order, an eye as clear as crystal, a quick and springy step. He presented a rare example of health and strength. Like a lion in the forest, he breathed deep and with delight the smoky air of his factories. Though just 40 then, he still had the enthusiasm of youth. Always smiling, affable, and polite, he stood in marked contrast to the rough and ready men I met. Not one word which would have been objectionable, not a gesture which might have offended. And yet no fiercer adversary than Westinghouse could have been found when he was crossed. An athlete in ordinary life, he was transformed into a giant when confronted with difficulties which seemed insurmountable. He enjoyed the struggle and never lost confidence. When others would give up in despair, he triumphed. Had he been transferred to another planet with everything against him, he would have worked out his salvation. Tesla was likely a guest for a time at Westinghouse's home, a white brick villa known as Solitude. The surrounding estate was lovely. Flower and vegetable gardens, a grape arbor, 
a forest of large, mature trees. The only thing marring the beauty of solitude was to be found inside the house. Ceilings and walls and up the stairway were covered in loose, drooping electrical wires. When Westinghouse had installed electricity in solitude, he had insisted that all the wires remain open and accessible so that he could test out new improvements and innovations on them. This was also in the era before strict fire codes when it came to electrical wiring, in case you couldn't guess that on your own. Tesla wasted little time in getting to work. Charles Scott, a young Westinghouse engineer who was to become Tesla's assistant and, later, a professor of engineering at Yale University, recalled that Tesla's first appearance at the Westinghouse company in August 1888 made a lasting impression. Scott had only learned, quote, that there was such a thing as alternating current the summer before in 1887. I had graduated from college two years earlier, he said, and I wondered why I had not heard of such things from my professors. I had just come with the company and was assistant to E. Spooner, who was running the Dynamo's testing room at night. He called me and said, there comes Tesla. I had heard of Tesla, having read his paper on the polyphase induction motor, which my former college professor had pronounced as a complete solution to the motor problem. And now I was to see Tesla himself. There he came, marching down the aisle with head and shoulders erect and with a twinkle in his eye. It was a great moment for me. I mentioned last time that while in Pittsburgh, Tesla was paid a $2,000 a month consulting fee by the Westinghouse company, a princely sum equivalent to $50,000 today, which actually seems kind of far-fetched. And after doing a bit more research, it seems that this may not be the case after all. Once again, our sources disagree. Margaret Cheney lists the $2,000 amount in her Tesla Man Out of Time. And so far as I can tell, that's where other sources have picked it up. Where Cheney got this figure in the first place is a mystery. Mark Seifer, however, points out in Wizard that it's quite possible Tesla received no salary during his time in Pittsburgh, given Tesla's claim that he had a, quote, principle ever since I devoted myself to scientific laboratory research never to accept fees or compensations for professional services. Furthermore, Seifer points out a signed agreement by George Westinghouse, dated July 27, 1889, but given the timeline, I think the 1889 date might be an error, and that 1888 was meant, in which it's agreed that Tesla will work in Pittsburgh for the period of one year, and that during that time he will be paid with, quote, 150 shares of capital stock. In return, Tesla promised to assign any patents to the Westinghouse company, which were related to the development of his induction motor patents. All this suggests that there probably was no additional daily or weekly compensation, princely or otherwise. Not that Tesla was short on cash, mind you. He had his share of what he'd been paid for his patents, and his share of the royalties on the motors, so he had an income. Additionally, there was incidental compensation from Westinghouse for other contributions. When Tesla discovered that Bessemer steel made for a superior transformer to those made of soft iron, he was paid approximately $10,000 for the idea. So, no need to concern yourself that Tesla wasn't able to maintain himself in the style to which he'd become accustomed. Indeed, after his move from New York, Tesla took up residence in a series of Pittsburgh hotels, including the Metropolitan, the Duquesne, and the Anderson. 
This was the start of Tesla as fancy hotel dweller, a habit he would maintain after he returned to New York and for the rest of his life. Though Tesla was to have some friends and colleagues at the Westinghouse Company, Scott among them, he perhaps did not expect when he agreed to his sojourn in Pittsburgh that he would face some serious opposition from within the company. Oliver Schallenberger, inventor of the AC wattmeter and very nearly the discoverer of the rotating magnetic field, we've met already. You'll recall from last time that he was part of the team that evaluated Tesla's patents and motors on behalf of Westinghouse. His assistant, Lewis B. Stillwell, inventor of the Stillwell Booster, which operated somewhat like a Tesla coil, which Tesla also beat him to, is another. Tesla even managed to somehow run afoul of Andrew W. Robertson, Westinghouse's chief executive officer. Yet another opponent, and again one we met last time, was William Stanley. As we talked about before, Stanley had a giant ego and a tempestuous personal and professional relationship with Westinghouse. At one point, as you'll recall, he claimed to have invented basically the same AC motor that Tesla had and demanded Westinghouse pay him for the invention, which Westinghouse refused. Stanley would end up splitting away from the Westinghouse Corporation a few years later, in the early 1890s, to sell his own polyphase motors, which clearly infringed Tesla's patents. When he lost a lawsuit a few years after that, Stanley was forced to purchase the Tesla motors from Westinghouse. All these men, and perhaps more, aligned themselves against Tesla for a variety of reasons. Some out of pride and vanity, some out of ego. They disliked his pronouncements that everything they thought they knew about generating electricity and running motors was now out of date and irrelevant. Many disliked him out of professional jealousy and outright greed. After all, Tesla had beat them to the key patents in the AC field and cost them fortunes of their own. So they resented Tesla's sudden wealth and fame and the claims that some made that Tesla was going to be as big as, and maybe bigger than, Edison. To illustrate the hostility among the Westinghouse engineers, Seifer points out how one of these foes, Lewis B. Stilwell, wrote about the history of alternating current some four decades later. In a book entitled George Westinghouse Commemoration, a kind of corporate history, edited by Tesla's assistant Charles Scott, Stilwell recounts how Westinghouse brought the Gulliard and Gibbs system to America, how Schallenberger had come up with the brilliant invention of the induction meter, and then offhandedly mentions that Westinghouse acquired rights for the Tesla motor and that Tesla struggled in vain for a year in Pittsburgh trying to adapt his system to the Westinghouse standards. Not exactly ringing praise, hmm? It's clear from what Tesla later wrote and said about his time at Westinghouse that the depths of this opposition soured the experience for him. And it is true that things did not go well for Tesla in Pittsburgh, and that they didn't go well from basically the start. Early on, it became clear that Tesla's AC induction motor did not, as George Westinghouse had hoped, have any value as a streetcar motor, meaning the company was shut out of a fast-growing and lucrative business that Westinghouse had been counting on. Then it became obvious that the induction motors didn't mesh easily with the Westinghouse single-phase AC central lighting stations. Tesla explained the problem in his autobiography. My system was based on the use of low-frequency currents, and the Westinghouse experts had adopted 133 cycles with the object of securing advantages in transformation, 
because their Gullard-Gibbs system operated at that frequency. They did not want to depart from the standard form of apparatus, and my efforts had to be concentrated upon adapting the motor to their conditions. With 120 Westinghouse power plants set up at 133 cycles per second, one can understand the predicament Tesla was placed in. Since Schallenberger's AC electric wattmeter was quickly and easily adapted to the existing Westinghouse 133-cycle single AC circuit, it seemed logical to everyone at Westinghouse that Tesla's polyphase motor ought to be able to be made compatible as well. Logical to everyone except Tesla, of course. You can imagine how popular he made himself around the Westinghouse shop by insisting that those central stations would simply have to be retrofit. It didn't help either that Schallenberger's wattmeter was so successful. As soon as customers saw bills based on usage, they began turning off unneeded lights. The Westinghouse central stations, equipped with the meters, now had to generate only half to two-thirds the amount of electricity as those central stations that were still operating without meters. The savings to the company were dramatic. Maybe Tesla's motors weren't all that important after all, some began to wonder. To adapt his motor for the company's needs, Tesla and the Westinghouse boys, as they called themselves, made several design changes, including increasing the amount of copper wire in the rotors, as well as replacing the wrought iron core of the rotor and stator with soft Bessemer steel, as I mentioned earlier. The change to steel cores alone doubled the work that a typical motor could perform, and was a Westinghouse company trade secret for years. Tesla also worked with the chief Westinghouse designer, Albert Schmidt, to develop a standard frame for the stator that could be easily cast and machined. While working on these changes, Tesla prepared patents for Westinghouse, and in 1889 he filed 15 applications, which in terms of patents was the most productive single year of his career. On the basis of these design changes, the Westinghouse company built between 500 and 1,000 split-phase Tesla motors by early 1889. But it's not clear how many of these motors actually shipped. Not able to install them in streetcars, Westinghouse instead marketed them for use in mining machinery. The company also decided to use graphite bearings in these motors against Tesla's advice. He thought that they would overheat and fail. When the Westinghouse people didn't follow his advice and began shipping these motors, Tesla understood that for all the promises made, it was unlikely that his opinion about his own inventions would be listened to or respected at the Westinghouse company. Tesla decided that it was time to leave. He made plans to return to New York, feeling physically and mentally exhausted. The months spent in Pittsburgh, he felt, were wasted since they had kept him from moving ahead with new research. One wonders whether Stilwell or Stanley or some of the others celebrated a little, or a lot, that the pesky Tesla had been chased out of town, taken down a peg or two by not managing to produce the commercial AC induction motor that he had promised. I suspect the answer is probably yes. Typically, Tesla glosses over this unpleasantness in his autobiography. He simply says that by late in 1889, his services in Pittsburgh were no longer essential, so he left for New York and resumed experimental work on a laboratory on Grand Street, where he focused on the design of high-frequency machines. However, O'Neill recounts a conversation many years later, in which Tesla says, quote, 
I was not free at Pittsburgh. I was dependent and could not work. To do creative work, I must be completely free. When I became free of that situation, ideas and inventions rushed through my brain like Niagara. Tesla left Westinghouse in August 1889 and traveled to Europe to see the Paris Exposition. You remember, the one where that eyesore, the Eiffel Tower, made its debut. To continue the work on his AC motors, Tesla recommended that Westinghouse put the project in the hands of his assistant, Charles F. Scott. While Scott had started off essentially doing little more than oiling motors for Tesla, he had impressed the inventor. And, as was typical of Tesla throughout the rest of his career, he was very supportive of his assistants and employees who did good work. He would often promote them or give them spontaneous cash bonuses for job well done. Meanwhile, As Tesla was laboring on AC motors in Pittsburgh, back in Manhattan, though no one knew it at the time, the first salvos in the War of the Currents were being readied. From as far back as the spring of 1888, New Yorkers had increasingly been gripped by a new and growing fear. Death by wire. The first incident was in April 1888. Snows from the Great Blizzard of 88, which had struck Manhattan a month earlier, were finally gone. On the cold, clear Saturday night of April 15, 1888, a young boy playing alone in the street along East Broadway grabbed hold of a broken telegraph wire that still dangled from where it had snapped during the blizzard. Passersby later reported that, wire in hand, the boy skipped around and around the telegraph pole until suddenly there was a shower of sparks and the boy staggered back and fell to the sidewalk. The boy, later identified as Moses or Meyer Strafer, was rushed to the Chamber Street Hospital, but it was too late. The boy was dead, electrocuted. The New York Daily Tribune editorialized, It is almost a pity that it wasn't a millionaire or other leading citizen that was killed by the electric light wire on Sunday morning. If it had been, the community would have been startled, and its indignation might have brought the wires underground. But it was only a poor boy peddler, a little fellow 15 years old, a Romanian, a stranger in this great city, selling collar buttons and pocket combs from a modest tray to help support his mother and eight brothers and sisters. A wire had been swinging for months from a pole near where the boy took his stand. He happened to touch it, gave a sort of quack, the policeman said, and was dead. The U.S. Illuminating Company, which ran its arc lights off high-voltage wires strung along the avenues, was charged with neglect for allowing dangerous wires to dangle. Overhead cables suddenly leaped into prominence not only as eyesores, but as a public peril, notes Westinghouse biographer Francis Lepp. Leading newspapers, which till then had confined their discussion to the expediency of exchanging gas for electricity, began, with astonishing unanimity, to make a display of every happening that could be used to excite animosity in the popular mind toward the high-voltage alternating current. Less than a month after Strafer died, electricity and specifically high-voltage alternating current, claimed another victim. On Friday, May 11th, a brush electric company worker failed to wear his heavy leather gloves while removing some old wires. He severed one and was electrocuted, and nearly set the whole building ablaze as the live current set some of the insulation on fire. Rescuers who tried to touch the body received painful shocks. It wasn't until rubber sheets could be found they could remove the ghastly, charred remains of the linemen. Naturally, the newspapers ate this up. 
and they began reporting on every casualty and fatality caused by high-voltage electrical wires. And not far from the city, at Menlo Park in New Jersey, Thomas Edison watched all this with a sense of satisfaction. He had been warning for years about the fatal dangers of alternating current to anyone who would listen. But now, it seemed that the average citizen might also begin to share his fear of AC and associate it with danger and death. Having been losing market share to Westinghouse and his AC systems for more than three years by that point, Edison, ever the cutthroat businessman, sensed an opening. The War of the Currents was about to begin. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it too, or share a link to the show on your social media. If you can take just a minute or two and leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, it would be a huge help to the show. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more chance people who might not otherwise encounter the show will see it and subscribe. Thanks for your help. Past episodes, as well as show notes, can be found on our website, www.teslapodcast.com. Remember to sign up there for our email list, or sign up again if you tried once but haven't been getting the alerts. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManCotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.